mercy and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. By March 4th, 1865, the day of Abraham Lincoln's second inauguration, everyone knew the South was finished. It was only a matter of time before the battle was over, and Lincoln spent little time on the war in his address. Instead, he focused on the future and reunion, on reconciliation. He wrote, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Caring for widows and orphans, binding wounds, malice toward none, charity for all. Sounds almost scriptural, doesn't it? On April 3rd, Richmond, Virginia, the capital and, and uh, citadel of the Confederacy, fell to Union troops. On April 9th, Palm Sunday, uh, General Robert E. Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia and Appomattox to General Ulysses S. Grant. The war had essentially ended. Newspapers were hard-pressed to keep up with demand for the, the extra editions they were publishing. The Evening Star in Washington, D.C., in a special third edition at the day, of the day, published it four o'clock in the afternoon reported the glorious news. As we write, Washington City is in such a blaze of excitement and enthusiasm as we have never before witnessed here in any approachable degree. The thunder of cannon, the ringing of bells, the eruption of flags from every window and housetop, the shouts of enthusiastic gatherings on the streets, all echo the glorious report, Richmond is ours. On April 14th, Good Friday, Union forces reoccupied Fort Sumter and raised Old Glory over the place where the war had started four years earlier. But that night, all the shouts of triumph turned to tragedy when, in the darkness of Ford's theater, Abraham Lincoln became the first U.S. president to be assassinated. How quickly triumph can turn to tragedy. On this first day of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Jesus is the, the Prince of Peace, rode into Jerusalem to the cheers of crowds waving palm branches, a traditional uh, symbol of victory. And if there had been a Jerusalem evening star back then, they would have been busy putting out extra editions themselves. The Savior was big news. But then the following Friday, the cheers turned to tears when the Savior was crucified, murdered really on the tree of a cross because he'd done nothing to deserve death. That whole Lincoln-Jesus thing has some interesting parallels, doesn't it? But then life can be like that. First a feeling of triumph, and then you get blindsided by tragedy. And it doesn't usually involve you know, murder or mayhem. Uh, the housing market in the county, and in Camarillo, is crazy high right now. Uh, homes are on and off the market in a weekend and selling for, for record prices. You can look at your equity and feel like a rich man or a wealthy woman. And you just keep on getting richer. But housing bubbles have burst in the past. Not your fault if it happens again, maybe, but it doesn't matter. You can be doing everything right and go from the top of the world to the basement and nothing flat. From somebody to just anybody. From something to nothing. That's life. It happens. And everybody takes a hit now and then. And nobody is immune. But Jesus, God's son, if you didn't know the story, if you're hearing it for the very first time, you'd be shocked. 
God the Father, the Creator, would certainly spare His own sons, the, the suffering of our son, the suffering of our fallen world, but He didn't. He couldn't. It was one of the keys to our redemption. And we know that Jesus was God too, the second person of the Trinity, and we know from the Bible that when He consented to step down from heaven and step into our world and into our flesh to save us from sin and teach us about our God of love, He set aside His divinity to experience and suffer what we experience and suffer. He was tempted, although he never sinned. He knew hunger and thirst and the, the hurt of loss and betrayal and the joy of friendship. He performed miracles to show people the power of God, that he was who he claimed to be, the very son of God. He healed the sick, restored sight to the blind, made the lame walk, and even raised the dead. He talked about his kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, and yet a greater kingdom than this world has ever known. Some people, especially the church leaders, hated him for it. All they heard was blasphemy. All they saw, if they, all they allowed themselves to see anyway, was Jesus the man. Because if he turned out to be who he claimed to be, then the cushy world they were enjoying was about to come crashing down around them. But others, many others, heard his message of unconditional love and embraced it like the lifeline it really was. They loved him and believed in him and found forgiveness and a future forever in heaven with him through faith in him, despite the fact that he didn't, really didn't look very much like the king they expected. In fact, when he finally arrived, he was totally unexpected in so many ways. The miracles were a powerful testimony, and many saw it, and they believed because of them. The news of what he'd been doing spread like wildfire, sort of a first-century version of something going virus these days. He was uh, something else all right, but the king of kings? The superhero they expected would come to free them from living under the thumb of the hated Roman Empire. And all he seemed to want to talk about, though, was love, sin and love, repentance and love, forgiveness and love. They loved the idea of a savior, even the idea of a new king. It was Jesus that they were a little reserved about. Once they figured out he had come to save them from sin, not from Rome, he became an easy target for the party line of the chief priests and the scribes. His mode of arrival into Jerusalem beginning in that week was probably something that didn't help his cause any. Those who already believed must have, must have wondered how anybody could have missed seeing the truth of him. But for those who didn't, I mean, sure, the crowds lined the road leading into the city. They waved their palm branches and laid them down on the road before him. They cheered and rejoiced at his arrival, shouting their hosannas. But when the church and the government officials saw him coming through the crowds, what was that he was riding on? A donkey? A colt of a donkey? Conquering kings didn't come riding into town on a donkey. Conquering kings rode magnificent stallions. They, they rode war horses. They drove chariots. They led parades of soldiers, not religious pilgrims. Based on their experience with the great Roman Empire, the image was everything, not humility, but pride was everything. It could turn a minor victory into a major success, and it could turn a major victory into a triumph that filled people with hope and security and pride. You want to hear how kings are supposed to enter a city? Plutarch was a a famous Greek historian and biographer. He enjoyed Roman citizenship in the latter part of the first century. Uh, he authored biographies of several famous Greeks and Romans. And in an account of the Roman consul 
Aemilius Paulus. He describes a triumphant procession into Rome to celebrate his decisive victory over the Macedonians in 168 BC. Scaffolds were erected in the circuses and the forums and anywhere else that citizens might be afforded a better view. The spectators all wore white. All the temples were open and filled with garlands and perfumes. It was something to see and something to smell. Triumph was literally in the air. It lasted for three days as statues, pictures, and colossal images seized from the enemy were carried along in 250 chariots. Three days as wagon after wagon rolled through the streets, piled high with, with the richest and finest armor and, and weapons of the Macedonians. Three days as 3,000 men marched by, carrying hundreds of vessels filled with gold and silver coins, so heavy that each one took four men to carry. The third day early in the morning began with the trumpeters, followed by young men elaborately dressed, leading 120 oxen destined to be sacrificed to the gods, their horns gilded with gold, their heads adorned with ribbons and garlands. The gold cups and plates used at the king's own table were paraded by next, and then came the Macedonian king's own chariot, loaded with his own armor, followed by the king's children and their attendants and teachers. And then came Perseus himself, the defeated king, clad all in black. All this was followed by 400 golden crowns that had been sent by cities that had been conquered or simply pledged their loyalty to the empire without a battle. That's how a celebrated general or a, a Roman consul, the highest elected official in Rome, would enter a city. But the king of kings, he came riding on a lowly donkey. Where's the strength and the power in that? Where's the projection of confidence and, and power and even hope, at least to that culture? Where, his, where was his PR firm? Well, I guess he didn't need one. He just had to watch him. Just had to listen to him teach. He was truly a man of the people, respected by the people, relating to the people. To know him was to believe in him one-on-one, -on -one, just like today. Can you see how people's sense of triumph on Palm Sunday then was so easily turned to tears and in many cases taunts by the temple leaders the following Friday? What kind of threat, other than some serious rioting maybe, do you think Jesus really posed in their minds? You know, what kind of power did he project that could ever stand up to the power of Rome? World powers couldn't stand up to Rome. What kind of threat could one man and a group of ragtag followers be? And as for his followers, even his closest disciples expected him to demonstrate his kingdom in, in earthly ways. They'd hoped he'd come to redeem Israel, and he had, but not from bondage to Rome from bondage to sin, much greater victory than they could ever have imagined. And so the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees had little trouble generating loud, large crowds under their own influence by Good Friday who would not be cheering Jesus with, his Hosanna, with their hosannas like the Galilean pilgrims did, the people who had come to celebrate the Passover. Now these new crowds who could easily see the so-called savior held no hope against Rome had been primed to shout instead, Crucify him. Crucify him. It would be their protest against a blasphemer who had claimed to be the Son of God. Now we know now that Jesus had come at just the right time and in just the right place to fulfill all the prophecies written about him hundreds of years before. But what if he could have done it differently? What if he could have come today? What if he did? What if he stepped down into our so-called enlightened world? 
to force us to confront our sin and our need for a Savior. You know, it's really what's been happening as we've read a part of the uh, passion story of our Lord each Wednesday night during this Lenten season. And as he confronted us in his word, you know, I tell you the truth. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. One of you will betray me. For this I have loved you, that you also would love one another. So much to think back on. So much to remember. We don't have to be able to look him in the eye to feel his stare upon us as our hearts turn away in shame. We certainly hope that he would be welcome if he came back today. But really all we can do is hope because believers make up just only about a third of the world. As the service this morning takes a turn toward Good Friday in just a little while, when we read the passion story from the Gospel of Luke, you'll have a chance to be part of that crowd. You'll have a role to play. You'll be asked to shout, crucify him. And when you do, I hope you'll recognize that you had a role to play when that story was first played out almost 2,000 years ago. Jesus came not just to keep the law for the ancients, the life God expected and demanded of them that they couldn't manage. He came to stand in for us as well. On the cross, the punishment for our failures and our disobedience was meted out to him on Good Friday too. People haven't changed. They never really will change, according to the Bible, at least not in this world. And so our need for a Savior hasn't changed either. In fact, it may be greater than ever. Congress sent a bipartisan bill to the president for his signature on March 29th uh, that will criminalize lynching as a federal crime, a hate crime, penalized by up to 30 years in prison. Uh, and your first reaction might be to think, gee, do we really need a law like that? Murder's been against the law like forever. We want to hang some, trying to hang somebody against the law forever. But evidently we did, at least on the federal level. And you should know that it was the 200th attempt in 100 years to get that passed. There's an historical book written by author James Allen that chronicles lynching in the United States. And he calls himself a picker. He says, I collect things that people don't want and sell them to people that do, who do. And along the way, he discovered that in America, everything is for sale, even national shame. The book is a collection of picture postcards of lynching victims from all backgrounds all across the country. Most of them are from the early 1900s, and as you can imagine, they're disturbing. The fact that people would even publish and sell hundreds of these photo cards to others as souvenirs to mail to their friends is nothing short of disturbing. But even more disturbing than the grotesque, grotesque images is what he calls the lingering pack, the onlookers, sometimes a dozen, sometimes hundreds, men smoking cigars and smiling, women and children gossiping, laughing. There's often a, a party atmosphere to it, a celebration. And a lot of the documentation from the photos indicates that the lynchers, who often had to break into jails to get at their victims, were rarely brought to justice. See, here's the thing. You know, we watched Mel Gibson's uh, movie, The Passion of the Christ, and maybe you have plans to do that this week. Um, and we're repulsed by the, the graphic scenes of brutality and inhumane treatment that Jesus suffered. We're offended by the injustice of his trial and crucifixion. Even though, uh, even over the protests of Pilate himself, 
who saw no cause for the death penalty. And we think to ourselves how barbaric people were back then and how supposedly holy and righteous church leaders acted selfishly and in their own best interest despite the evidence. Now that was Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. James Allen's book, Without Sanctuary, memorialized what was happening right here in America just over 100 years ago. So what's really changed? Not us. Our need for a savior is still very real. You know, Holy Week seems like such a picture of contrasts and reversals of fortune, but it's really not. It was God's plan of salvation from the beginning of time playing itself out on a field we'd rather not be anywhere near. And yet each one of us has already played our part. Just like Jesus needed to play his in order to rescue us from God's wrath and punishment. It wasn't just the, the crowds who shouted crucify him on Friday who needed a savior. It was also the crowds who shouted Hosanna on Palm Sunday. You know, if the whole movement of the story from Palm Sunday to Good Friday demonstrates anything all, at all of the continuing value beyond the history of the moment, it's some people would have you believe, uh, clearly demonstrates the unconditional love of a merciful God toward repentant sinners, just like us. Because even though Jesus may not have looked like the people's expected version of a Savior King that first Palm Sunday, he was exactly what they needed, exactly what we need today. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We'll take a moment now to receive your gifts, your tithes, and your offerings.